Bibles, if you would please, and we'll open them up to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This evening I want to continue the message that I began last week on the subject, the rule of faith and practice. It's a message about the Bible. It's a message about God's holy word, which is the source book. It's the guidebook for everything that we do in the Christian faith. God's will is revealed to us through the scriptures. It remains the chief way that we learn what God wants us to do. We've discussed that God has ways that he has revealed himself and ways that we can find out what his will is. One of those is that we can look at the example of other Christians. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the 17th verse of this chapter and speak about examples, good examples that there are to follow. And we can learn God's will by looking at good examples. We can also find out God's will by praying, having the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us uh, teach us what we need to do. But the chief way that we find God's will for our lives is through the Holy Scriptures. It's the Bible that God uses, the Holy Spirit uses to illuminate our minds to the truths that are spoken in His Word and then how to carry out God's will in our life. At the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, the Word of God as we know it today, the complete canon of Scripture was was not yet done. Uh, As I mentioned last week, there were several of the books of the New Testament that were written, but not all of the Bible was finished. And even if it were, there weren't any printing presses. There was no way to distribute the Word of God. So an entire congregation may only have just a few scrolls of some of the books. They wouldn't have, like we do today, our individual families. We may have a dozen Bibles in the house. I know we do at home. I think uh, I counted up the other day, and just in my nightstand, there's about 15 Bibles there, so I don't have a problem getting, getting access to a Bible. But it wasn't so in those times. They didn't have the access to the Word of God. And so as Paul addresses the people, he tells them that they have to learn to walk in the ways that they had been taught by him. And they, they weren't all in the same stage of their understanding. But Paul was confident that as they listened to him, as they learned more about what God wanted them to do, eventually they would come around and there would be this unity of spirit with them that they would all walk in the same way and do the same thing. Now this is where he is as he writes verses 15 and 16 of the chapter. And we're going to read these two verses uh, tonight and then go into the second part of this message about the rule of faith and practice. So let's stand, please. Just a couple of verses we want to read here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for those who come out tonight to hear your word. And Lord, we just thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the revelation that we've been given so that we can know you, understand what you'd have us to do. We thank you for our salvation that we have in Christ. Blessing the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In that 16th verse, he says, Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. The revelation of truth to these people at Philippi was progressive. And what Paul is telling them here is they had received a certain amount of light, and what they had learned, they were to continue to walk in that light, not to depart from it, 
what they'd already learned was what we could say like a guidepost. I mean, here is a marker, here's what they're to go by, and they're to stick with what they've been taught. And then as they received further revelation from the Lord, more scripture was being written, and they were to accept that as the truth of God's word. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, they didn't have the completed word of God. They were learning, they were receiving as Paul and others would teach them. But today, of course, we do have all of the Word of God. We have the complete revelation of God's Word. And this is where we find out God's will for our lives. So we're talking here about the rule of faith and practice. And my messages, these these three messages that I'm preaching on this subject are to show us the different aspects of God's Word that really make it the only guide that we'll ever need. Paul said that the Word is profitable for reproof, for instruction and righteousness... He says, this is the thing that will thoroughly furnish you unto all good work. Now, before we go on to something new tonight, uh, let me just remind you of point number one in the message last, uh, last week, and that is the inspiration of the Word. The Bible is the written Word of God, and it is inspired. It's the revealed Word of God, God's personal revelation. And we've studied this, and I mentioned in uh, two messages that God has a desire to reveal himself. And the way that we know God, the way that we understand who God is, is through this word. And the way that we have received the written word of God is by God's inspiration of men to write down these revelations. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which I quoted just a little bit of that just a moment ago, Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And inspiration of God, that whole phrase is the Greek word theonoustos, and it means God breathed. So there are two words that we talked about last week in relation to inspiration. The first one was breath or breed, and the second one was, was preservation. He inspired men to write, and the inspiration was such that God used the writer's personality. He used the writer's own style to write down Scripture. But as the words were written, even though the author's style was used, it wasn't the author's own words that were written down. These are God's words, and each word that's written down had significance in that it did not originate in man's thought processes, but these things were put into the mind by the Holy Spirit of God. That second word that we talked about last week was preservation. God is able to create the world, and If he's able to to give us his word, he created the world by speaking the word, then certainly God is powerful enough to preserve the word for us today. We have the written word of God, and God is powerful enough to be sure that this word survives intact for all the generations that God would have to be led by it. I mean, from the very first words that were written down, we do believe that we have those very same words today that are God's words that we can read. So God inspired the original words, and when they were penned, he preserved those words. We don't have any of the original manuscripts from any author of the Bible, but these very same words that they wrote are preserved for it. Down through the centuries, there have been thousands upon thousands of copies of the Word of God that have been made. It's been translated into many different languages, but we could still have confidence, and we do have confidence, that what we're reading here is not man's words, but in fact, they are God's words. And as we look right at this copy tonight, I believe we can, with all assurance, say this is the Word of God. And that's not to say that there haven't been men who have 
uh, perverted the translation of the Scripture because they certainly have. But we, again, do believe that as we look at our English King James Version of the Bible, we have confidence that God has preserved His Word for us, and we do have, again, in fact, have His Word. So the first aspect of the Bible, then, is inspiration, and this is the way that we know the revelation of God. Now, as we move on from that particular aspect, the second one that I want to consider is the conversion by the Word. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, not only because of its inspiration, but it is through the Bible, God's Word, that sinners are converted. This is the means by which they're converted. It's through the hearing of the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul told Timothy that the Word was able to make him wise unto salvation. In Ephesians 1.13, he writes, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. James the apostle writes on, and he says in James 1.18, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be the kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Peter also says the same in 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And we could go on and on. We could list many different scriptures that speak of the truth, the gospel that we have here. It's the word that has the power to convert lost sinners. God doesn't use anything but the word. You cannot be converted to Christ without hearing the Word of God, the infallible Word of God. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to change a sinner's heart. And so then, if it is the Word that God uses, if this is the thing that will convert, then it must be this Word that's been inspired, it must be the one that's been preserved. It has to be the truth that God uses in order to convert the sinner. Now, there are two terms, then, that we need to know about relating to conversion. The first one is operation. When a, when a person hears the word of God, it's not the hearing alone that converts him. When the Bible speaks about hearing that converts, what it's actually talking about is belief of the words. Hearing alone does not have any kind of magical power that would transform a person's heart. The Bible speaks of hearing in the sense of believing the Word of God. And we know that this is the way it must be because there are plenty of people who come to church here every time that on Sundays as we preach the Word of God, they hear the gospel of Christ, and there are lost people that go out that door not having believed what the Word says. So it's not just hearing that converts a person. There has to be an operation. There has to be the Holy Spirit who comes and does something with those words. And, and so that's why we, we do not believe that belief in Christ is simply a mechanical decision-making process. It's not just something that you hear and you make a decision on. And, and it's a reason why, too, that we don't push for decisions in the invitation time because we do believe that the Holy Spirit has to bring a person to believe. There has to be that operation that takes place on the soul of a sinner who is unwilling to believe the gospel of Christ in order to make him willing that he will receive it. John says this, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so the Holy Spirit inspires the Word, and then he takes that Word, this inspired Word, and he uses it to operate in a person's heart to cause him to believe. 
Now, there's a second term that's essential in conversion, and this is regeneration. And regeneration is a word that I guess nearly every Bible believer knows, every preacher knows the word regeneration, but unfortunately, it's, it's a word that the vast majority of people do not understand. Regeneration is God bringing a dead sinner from death to life. And regeneration is necessary. That, that is fundamental to conversion. How a person is regenerated, though, that's, that's another matter. That's a, that's a subject of great debate. And there are basically two beliefs about regeneration. Either regeneration comes by the work of man, or it's accomplished by the work of God. And that seems like a very simple statement for us to understand, but it really gets kind of complicated when there are many people who believe in what we call synergistic regeneration as opposed to monergistic regeneration. The difference between those two is that one the mono, mono, monogeneration, that mono, uh, uh, monogistic regeneration, that is God alone regenerating me. Whereas synergistic regeneration is God helping me to regenerate me. And so when someone says something like, well, I was saved in my baptism, I was regenerated through baptism, then what they're actually saying is that I regenerated myself with God's help. And you say, well, why would you say that? How does that work? Well, baptism is something that you have to submit to, and there also must be an administrator before you can be baptized. And so in that method, you are responsible, and the administrator is also responsible for your salvation. Now, that's actually what we call sacerdotal salvation, and that means that there is a human mediator between you and God. And if you think about infant baptism, that's even worse I mean, people who believe that you can wash away original sin, you regenerate a child through infant baptism, then they've actually added something even worse to this because you have two mediators in that process. You have parents who submit to it and take the children to the baptism. Then you have the priest also who performs that baptism. So that, that's a synergistic form of regeneration. But that's not the only way that that people put man's work and God's work together and say, you have to have both in order to have regeneration. Whenever a person says that man's decision is a means of regeneration, then that is also a form of synergism. And what it does, it makes salvation, regeneration, a work of man. So what I'm saying then is that those who preach that the word of God is what God uses to regenerate a soul, that he uses the word to operate upon the soul, could not at the same time say that regeneration is synergistic. Uh, it's, It's man plus God, because those two things cannot go together. One of the two has to be abandoned. So if we believe that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates through the word, we can't at the same time believe that man's decision-breaking process is a part of that regeneration. Now, the regeneration by the Holy Spirit using the Word is what you would call supernatural. It's a supernatural work, a belief of the Word, because without that operation, there would be no regeneration. But when you change that around and say that man's belief comes into this, and it's man's decision-making processes, and that becomes a natural process and not a supernatural process. Now we're talking about cognitive processes. And if you have that... If it's simply a cognitive process, then it means that all people are capable of it. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. 
Jesus says this in John chapter 6. He says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Now right there, that's a denial of synergistic salvation. The spirit quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The flesh can add nothing to this. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. So there you have verses that remove regeneration from the realm of cognitive processes, and that destroys the argument that regeneration is synergistic. So what it should do for us then is to elevate the Word of God. It shows us how really important that God's word is because Jesus says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so without the word, all we have is death. There is spiritual death. So the word then is absolutely essential to our conversion. The Holy Spirit uses the word in order to bring us to life and regeneration will not occur without the presence of God's word. Now I might also add to this that When the word converts, it doesn't leave us in a regenerated state and then stop there. Because what the word does, it continues to work and it leads us into the path of discipleship. And so if you have a person who claims salvation, who says, well, I have been regenerated, I am a believer in Christ, and yet they haven't surrendered to the lordship of Christ, and if discipleship is not real in their lives, then that person has not been truly converted. So that leads us then to the next aspect of the word. It's our rule of faith and practice, and so it's absolutely necessary also for sanctification. So we speak about the sanctification by the word. The word has sanctifying power. Jesus says in John 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so the word is instrumental for our holiness We receive cleansing through the Word, and it's through the Word that we begin to be outfitted for service to God. In John 15, verse 3, Jesus says, Now ye are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. Now that was spoken to his disciples just hours before his death. These men were already saved, but they were now listening to the teachings of Jesus, and as they did, what he was doing was purging them from their sins. Jesus was doing was preparing them for greater service and the production of more fruit. And if you follow that out, as you know, John chapter 15 is that whole discourse that Jesus gives about the vine and the branches, and it's all about bearing fruit in your Christian life. David said in Psalm 119, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? And so it's the rule of faith and practice for sanctification. God's word is our sanctification. Now let's talk about that for just a few minutes. What is it that God's word does in sanctification? Well, the first word that we need to remember here is conviction. The word has convicting power. When David speaks of being cleansed through the word, he means that it's through the word that we find direction. It's through the word that we see false ways and the word of God identifies the, the wrong that's in our lives. Now this 119th Psalm, I know that most of you are familiar with it, but it's really just a, a wonderful place, a very valuable place to go to help us to understand better what the Word of God does to us and for us. Uh, here's what 
one of the things that we find David says about conviction through the word. In the 104th verse of that chapter, he says, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. In the 128th verse, he said, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. So this is what the word does. It convicts us of false ways. So you see that when a person is truly a child of God, when he reads God's word and he sees his sin exposed by the word, he will be convicted by that. The new nature that's in us, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, will not allow us to have our sin exposed. It can't be brought to the light and identified before our eyes without having the Spirit tug on our hearts to do something about it, to change our ways. And a pastor sees this with the preaching of the Word. There are some that I could point to tonight who've told me that they really didn't even realize that they were doing anything wrong until something came up in a sermon. And then when the sermon addressed that and they found out that what they were doing was the wrong thing, they were convicted by that. And they changed what they were doing. And I'm not going to mention any names here, but there is one person who told me that I wasn't preaching fast enough for him. Now, he didn't mean the speed of my preaching. What he meant was, you just can't get to everything soon enough because I know there are things in my life that need to be corrected. I want to hear about those so I can take care of it. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people to be convicted by the Word of God and then have that Word correct the areas of their life that needs to be corrected. That's the true heart of a child of God. You don't get angry because something gets preached on that you've done or what you're doing, you get glad about it because it helps me to correct the errors of my life that need to be corrected. And a person who has that kind of reaction to God's Word instead of stomping out the door because of what the preacher said is well on his way to doing what Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That is exactly how you do it. You go to the Word, you listen to the Word, you read the Word, you find out the false ways, and then you abandon them. That's what the Word of God does. It convicts the heart. Now, there's a second term regarding the sanctifying power of the Word, and here's another very important word. It's separation. The Word of God convicts, and conviction will bring separation. Holiness has a dimension of separation. You should know that holiness means to be set apart from sin. It means also to be set apart for God. And so when the false ways of our lives are identified, false ways will be abandoned because we're seeking separation in our holiness. Now, most of you know this scripture uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about this very issue of separation. But I want you to turn there, if you would, in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to read this again, a real familiar passage to all of us. Paul is here speaking to the Corinthian church, and they were prone to allow sin to come into the church. I mean, th- these were people that Paul had to just stay on top of because they were, they were going to go back to their old ways, and they were dabbling in the old sins that they had. And one of the biggest problems, reasons, I should say, for the problem doing, of doing that is that they were hanging on to old friends, hanging on to old things and their old lifestyles, and there was no separation, there was no holiness. And so Paul writes this in the 14th verse of that chapter, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, 
And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And the separation that God demands is a reminder of the Old Testament command for holiness. Holiness in the Old Testament was, was demonstrated in very graphic ways. One of those ways was with the priest in the, uh, the high priest in the tabernacle. And if you remember from our study on this, the high priest had a golden plate that was put on the miter on his head. And on that golden plate were the words, Holiness to the Lord. And that meant for him to be acceptable, his ways had to be cleansed. He had to keep God's ways ever before him. It had to be on his mind all the time. And that was the whole idea of placing this on his head. It's right there where it's right next to the brain, right next to the mind. And that was to become a part of his being. I mean, this is, this is what he is. He's someone who seeks the holiness of God. And it's demonstrated in other ways. Those dietary laws that God gave, the, the laws against intermarriage with heathens, even coming down to mixing different types of clothing and different, different fabrics, they weren't allowed to do that. And the reason that they weren't was because God was showing them they were to be a holy, separated people. They're to be a godly people. Now turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, if you will, just a minute here. And we want to see how the Word of God figures into our holiness. Remember, Deuteronomy means second law. This is the second time that Moses went over God's law with Israel. In Deuteronomy, it's right before they get ready to go into the promised land. And Moses, God is reminding Moses of some things that he had said. And Moses goes over this with the people. In Deuteronomy 4, verse number 1, it says, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, under the statutes and under the judgments which I teach you for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Now turn over to chapter 5 and verse 29. The first part of chapter 5 is a restatement of the Ten Commandments. So you might want to remember that. If you ever want to look up the Ten Commandments, we usually go to Exodus chapter 20, but you can also go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Go down to verse number 29. Deuteronomy 5 verse 29. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go say to them, get you into your tents again. But as for thee, stand thou here by me, and I will speak unto thee all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which thou shalt teach them, that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess it. Ye shall observe to do, therefore, as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess." Well, God's demand for his people was separation. And you can see by the words that are spoken here that it begins with the word of God. Staying in the word of God. Staying with the commandments that God has given. And so we find in the 119th Psalm again, 
that great psalm where David says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so it is the word of God that identifies those false ways. And through that, we begin to separate from all of these things that are wrong in our lives. And what that means is that that we will begin to separate from the activities of the world. Things that bring shame upon the name of Christ will depart from those things. Lifestyles will be changed. Our daily habits will be changed, the things that we do, because we have this desire to live for Christ. But that's not all of it does. There's also separation in the matter of our doctrine. Usually when we talk about separation, the preacher will go straight for the lifestyles. We go for dress, we go for hair, we go for morality, and we concentrate mostly on those kinds of things when we talk about separation. And indeed, those are things that need to be taught. But we also need to understand that God's true word will cause us to separate from Satan's false words. Now, here at Berean Baptist... We're not generic Christians. I just had a conversation with someone the other day and, and uh, about a, a Baptist church that, that uh, was wanting to remove the name and, you know, they didn't think that the Baptist name was, a, they thought it was a hindrance to them or whatever. And I said, well, here at Berean, we're, we're not generic Christians. We have something that we stand for. Uh, there are churches, and the typical church today has abandoned the Bible because the Bible is just too divisive. So use the Bible, that divides people. What we really need to do, we need to concentrate on these issues that unite us. Let's stay on the uniting issues and let's don't talk about the dividing issues. I promise you that if it's doctrine that divides us, we'll stay divided. And if it's truth that divides us, we'll just have to stay divided. So church today has come to be a place where the Bible has no place. It's like that article that I was reading in the paper the other day. I mentioned it a few weeks ago about one of the churches in Santa Rosa. And there was this high school student that was interviewed, a college student. I can't remember which. But this person said, I really like this church because it's not too religious. I I don't know how you have a church that's not too religious. But that's the reason I like it. They're just not religious. Now, that church was once a Baptist church. But what happened was the Word of God became too unpopular and it was not attractive enough to reach the crowd. And so things had to change. But you know a very interesting part of Christ's ministry? He started out with crowds. We'll we'll see that as we go. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he started out with crowds. There were thousands of people who followed him. But it wasn't very long when they started listening to the stringent demands of discipleship, the high cost of following Jesus, that there weren't any crowds for very long. They, they started to leave him. And you know one of the reasons that they did? It was because of this issue of separation. And the separation went so deep that Jesus said, you must forsake your mother and your father. He said, you've got to leave your brothers and your sisters. He said, you've got to leave your houses and your lands behind you. Leave it all behind you. That's serious separation. Churches today, though, they're preaching, bring it all with you. You don't need to leave it behind. Bring it all with you. In fact, bring it into the church. That's where we need Bring it into the church. You can have it all right here. You can feel warm and fuzzy. And so the modern church says, well, you can keep your old friends, you can keep your old habits, you can keep your old doctrines, or the lack of doctrine, however you want to look at it. Keep it all there. Keep it up. Bring it with you. 
because there's really not enough truth here to sanctify you anyways. You might as well have it with you. That's not what Paul means when he says, let's get a crowd together that way and let's get everybody together and let's walk by the same rule and let's, walk, and let's mind the same thing. He certainly was not talking about abandoning the doctrine that we stand for to get people together. So here we have a call for separation. This is to take God's word, apply it to your life, let the word of God grind down all of those rough edges that are in your life. Let it purify you. Let it cleanse you from all impurities. So you see here we have the value of God's word. It's inspired. It's the revelation of God's will for your life. You can't ignore it because the things that the Bible talks about are things that affect eternity. They affect eternity. So you can't ignore this. It's these words that by which you will be judged. It's inspired. It converts. It sanctifies So how can we do less than preach the Word of God in its entirety? Why would we ever do less? Inspired, convicting, sanctifying. As Paul says, it makes us wise unto salvation. And that's just three of the reasons that we preach the Word of God. Inspiration, conversion, and sanctification. Next week we're going to come back. We've got a couple more that we want to look at. A couple more aspects that... Tell us why the Bible alone is to be our rule of faith and practice and the real value of the Word of God. And it simply boils down to this. We cannot abandon it because it is God's Word. It's God's Word. You can't abandon God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the illumination that we receive, how the false ways are identified through your Word and We're brought strength and encouragement, sanctification. Your word is convicting power. Your word converts sinners. And we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us a word to let us know who you are and reveal to us the way of salvation. Lord, bless our people. We're thankful for the good people of Brian Baptist Church who stand by the word and even demand that it be preached from this pulpit. And we thank you for that. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.